I think normally when uh, chapters 9 and 10 of Ezra are uh, used is for a particular reason. I want us to take this same example today and maybe look at it perhaps a little more, uh, a little differently than what normally we uh, consider it. But when we go back to chapter 9, Ezra had discovered that the people all the way to the leadership had committed the sin of mingling with the peoples around them. They began to behave like they behaved and they married their daughters. I want us to notice the stages of emotion through which Ezra went. He started off with devastation. He cried, he tore his clothes, and he pulled his hair. Depression set in, and he sat for hours being speechless, not saying anything. Deliberation. He began to ponder the action that he knew that he needed to take and what God would want him to take. Then he formed a delegation of like faithful men who would help him carry out the plan that God had put into place and what he knew needed to be done. And then, of course, we see the determination in Ezra. He took the matter before God and he asked what he ought to do about that. And we see those, uh, and we can, we can uh, chart every one of those emotions in our own lives. Or at least I hope we can. It's not a problem for someone to have devastation and depression. That happens, right? We don't have to do a whole lot to, to gain those two attributes. But then we need to be able to deliberate have a delegation of those of like precious faith and then determination to carry on and do the things that God has asked us to do. Ezra was serious about what God expected from him. And he was serious about the Israelites coming to that same understanding. The title of the sermon this morning is Getting Serious About Being Serious. I think sometimes... We uh, are not as serious as we ought to be. For one to be pleasing to God, he has to be serious about pleasing God. We need to put that first and foremost in our lives, and we need to tackle that every single day because sometimes that's what it requires. It requires us to tackle it every single day because sometimes we get caught up in life and we forget the real purpose behind our being here, don't we? We allow things to distract us and to to take our attention off what we ought to be paying attention to. Of course, we understand God wants us to enjoy this life and this planet that He gave us, but He wants us to put that in the in the correct place in our lives. That comes secondary. That comes secondary to uh, the the most important things that we need to be uh, reaching out to gain in this life. Peter reminded those of like precious faith, 2 Peter 1, one, not to lose faith, not to lose focus. He wrote the letter to them. He knew they were faithful. He knew that uh, they knew the truth, but he wanted to make sure they maintained their faithfulness and they maintained their adhering to the truth. Notice what he reasoned. 2 Peter 3, beginning with verse 1. He said, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. I think there's no greater example of wonderful leadership 
and a people getting serious about being serious in their relationship with God than Ezra and the Israelites in this particular context. God had stirred the spirit of King Cyrus up. Uh, the people came back from Babylonian captivity, and, and Cyrus made this proclamation before all people. Ezra 1 verse 2, he said, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him an house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now we know that the the return from Babylonian captivity uh, happened over uh, uh, three stages. Zerubbabel was the first one. He was privileged to uh, lead the people back from captivity to help rebuild the temple. And then we, of course, remember Nehemiah. He was uh, the leader of the third return, so they could go back and they could repair the walls of the city. But it was Ezra who brought those folks out of Babylonian captivity in that second stage and brought them back to Jerusalem. Of course, by the time God had instructed Ezra and the people to return, they had become complacent in their lives, the ones that had already gone back. Now think about it, it had been 58 years since the first wave of returnees had uh, gone back to Judah to build the temple, and uh, uh, the zeal that God's people had had actually turned into apostasy. They had just simply stopped being serious about doing what God wanted them to do. The reports from the princes uh, came to the ear of Ezra, and he began to grieve, and he knew. He said, something has to be done. Something has to be done. Here's what they said, and this is the, the news that Ezra received. Ezra 9, beginning with verse 1. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abomination, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed, this wasn't by accident, the course of events through history wasn't by accident, they were the holy seed. He said they have mingled themselves with the people of those lands, yea, the hand of the princess and rulers have been chief in this trespass. What do you expect from the people when the leadership will not do that which is right? Are we surprised when when people of our own nation do those things which are not right? Then we look at the what the leadership of this nation espouses in so many areas of life that contradicts what God wants us to do. And we look at what Ezra was enduring. Ezra understood the need for getting serious. And we better understand that as well. He understood the necessity of refocusing the efforts of, of the people to return back to God and look at the important things of life. Now, we're not given an, an abundant amount of information about the great soldier of God, Ezra. But here's what we do know. And we've been told this, Ezra 10, or Ezra 7.10, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. And that's all we need to know if we want to get serious about being serious. We need to prepare our hearts to seek 
God. Notice what it said again. He prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. And to do it. And to do it. And not only was he going to do it, he wanted to teach the other folks that they needed to do it. What what better leader can you find than that? And I think it boils down to personal responsibility. I think what we see here is 58 years of no personal responsibility in Israel. 58 years, maybe not the whole 58, but at some point they stopped doing what they needed to be doing, and it was a lack of personal responsibility. Well-known ethicist Michael Josephson, he said one time, it's been said that the line between childhood and adulthood is crossed when we move from saying it got lost to I lost it. Maybe that's correct. Well, what happened to your whatever? Well, it got lost. Well, how's that? I don't know. No, you lost it, right? That's when we know that perhaps we've come into adulthood. And I don't know that there's ever been a generation of folks that has had as difficult time of transitioning from childhood to adulthood as in that I've noticed in in uh, the years I've been on earth. I remember, and I don't know if you all remember this, uh, I believe it was uh, a billboard, I think it was on 153, maybe around the Bonnie Oaks exits, and it had a billboard advertising, Help in Adulting. Help in Adulting. Is it just me or is that ridiculous? Help in Adulting. Take responsibility for your life and do what you're supposed to do, right? That's how adults uh, live in this world. I think a lot of people have bec- uh, have uh, succumbed to this Peter Pan philosophy of refusing to grow up and taking responsibility in their own lives. You know, I used to love to watch Peter Pan when I was younger. It was just great. All day of nothing but playing uh, uh, pirates. All day of just doing whatever you want to do. Well, that's what children do, right? Children have that luxury, and and they ought to have it. But we still need to train them as they come along. And I think it's uh, we're lacking that. And it's not just young people. I'm not picking on young folks. It's all people. All people. There are people who just simply refuse to do the things they know needs to be done in, in all aspects of life. You know? I was watching a documentary last night on uh, Appalachia. And uh, they went into the homes of uh, some particular people that lived up in uh, the, the mountains of Kentucky. Of course, it's Appalachian Mountains, and it's very similar from Pennsylvania down to where we are. But they had people in there, and they were they were looking at their everyday lives. And, of course, this one family, was, uh, they were poor. They didn't have anything. They didn't even have running water. A lot of them didn't. And this one particular young lady had married a fellow and he'd beat her up and he wasn't supporting the children and ultimately he ended up in prison for murdering someone. But when they went to, to divorce court and the judge asked this woman, how long have you been married? She told him. Has your husband held employment during that period of time? And she said, well, a couple times. A couple times. You know, Really? She said, okay, or he said, okay, you get permanent custody of the child only with 
supervised uh, visitation for him. Of course, he went to prison. He didn't care anything about the children anyway. It's, oh, is, there, is there a disconnect there? Sure there is. Sure there is. I think it, it seems that people refuse to realize the needs for change. I'd mentioned this in Bible class. I'd watched an episode of Hoarders. I'd never seen that before. And it was truly eye-opening. Uh, some of the mess that people can get themselves in and they begin to talk to the people and they've got a whole crew of 30 people come to help them clear their house out and make repairs and they're out there debating and arguing and, and wheeling and dealing trying to keep the junk. It's destroyed your life. You're living in uh, a rat infestation because you can't get to anything and they do not not realizing, I've got to make a change here. Ezra realized that. And to their credit, Israel, during this period of time, they realized it too. I want us to begin our study of Ezra and Israel with their confession. That's what you got to have. They're going to understand there's a problem. They need to have that confession. Ezra realized there was a problem. Things had gotten out of hand. The people needed to return to God. They needed to be brought back in line. But before they could do that, they had to recognize that there was a problem. Before we can fix a problem, we have to understand there is a problem. You don't change your tire because it's full of air. Right? You change your tire because it's flat. You don't change your battery because your car starts every time. You change your battery because it stops starting. And so the people had to realize that there was a problem, and they did. They needed to realize that, and they did. Jesus said that the gospel would be carried throughout the world. We get over into Colossians and it says that happened. See, we have to look around. We have to say, well, there's a problem in the world. We've got to carry this gospel message to people. That's one of the things collectively we need to look at, right? How are we going to spread the gospel? How are we going to reach out to folks? You know, there are about 150,000 people that enter into eternity every single day. You know, there are over 7.7 billion people in the world. And 150,000 every single day enter into eternity. And most of them go in unprepared. There's a problem. And like Ezra, we need to realize there's a problem. But but we can't help someone else unless we help ourselves first, right? Notice what Ezra did. How was it that Ezra was able to help the people of Israel? He sought to seek the law of God and to do it, then teach others to do it, right? We have to be what we need to be or we cannot help anyone else. But we need to also react the way the people we read about reacted. They made a confession. They realized there was a problem and they reacted appropriately. Ezra was weeping. The people were weeping. They knew they had sinned before God. God knew they needed to get serious and they knew they needed to get serious. They had to do some things, right? And in doing that, they repented of their actions. But it's not always action that's the problem. Sometimes it's inaction, right? Sometimes it's inaction. Now, we're going to have to be able to make some kind of present-day application to what was going on in Ezra's time. Now, I think it is probably very unlikely that... uh, a whole congregation of people are going to have to get rid of their spouses because they're in adulterous marriages. Now, there may be some who have been that way, 
uh, I was talking to some brethren another day, and it seems like a few years ago, one one prominent brother who had, who was a gospel preacher and had converted a whole lot of folks, he got to the point where he said, uh, "Are you?" He had asked him in the beginning, "Are you married? How many times have you been married?" Because it had gotten to such a problem that people were uh, divorcing and marrying for for all sorts of reasons, not according to Matthew nineteen nine. But we need to be able to react appropriately. These folks in Ezra acted reacted appropriately, right? We recognize a problem, we repent of the problem, we make that confession, and then we continue doing what God wants. And that's fundamental to the gospel, isn't it? That's fundamental to the gospel. The reaction that we have toward Christ's gospel. We need to be able to do the things necessary. Is it always easy? Well, no, it's not always easy, and sometimes for some people it's never easy. You know, I look, I look back at some of the New Testament uh, uh, gospel preachers, and I can't find an easy day in the life of Paul. I can't find an easy day. We don't have every detail, but everything I read about him is just from turmoil to turmoil. He is being attacked for whatever reason. His life being sought. People trying to get back at him. You know, it was hard. When we have the proper reaction to the gospel, we can do what God wants. You know, we first have to obey the gospel. That's the whole premise of what Christ came to earth to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to bring a gospel so the world could hear it. Paul said it was the power of God unto salvation, the gospel, Romans 1.16. It's that which... Causes faith to grow in the heart of uh, the the believer, Romans ten seventeen. That belief leads one to this repentance. Do you think that Israel believed God wanted them to change? Absolutely, absolutely. They believed it and they repented. They made the confession of their sin. Right now, when we talk about confession as it relates to the plan of salvation, we're probably talking about a couple different things. Initial salvation. We're not confessing sins. That's what happened under John's baptism, right? A, a, a baptism of repentance and the confession of sin. That's not what happens under the one baptism of Ephesians 4. We confess our belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. We need to be able to tell people about that. When we obey the gospel and we fall away, do we need to confess? Absolutely. We confess our sins. We might have to do it publicly. We may have to do it privately. But the idea is we confess our sins to God and ask Him to forgive us, and He'll do it. Of course, in initial salvation, following confession, you have baptism, immersion in water. Saul submitted to baptism. We read at least eight accounts in the, in the history of the Acts of the Apostles where uh, people obeyed the gospel, and they were always immersed in water so their sins would be forgiven. Then they lived that... That faithful lifestyle. That's where the second law of pardon comes in, right? We slip up. When we make mistakes, we need to be able to access that. But all of that, when we do that, we realize we can be what God needs us to be. And we realize others need to know about it. So when we look at Ezra and the people getting serious about being serious, they confess their problems, they realize there was a problem, and they repented of those problems. And they reacted appropriately. Now, 
If we're going to get serious about being serious, and we need to, we each need to look into our lives individually. The person who feels that way needs confession, but he also needs to understand where he is in his relationship with God, and that has everything to do with God's covenant. That's our second point. We need to be in a covenant relationship with God. Now, the covenant relationship that Ezra had with God and the nation of Israel had with God at that time is different than the one that Christians have today. They were a physical race of people who were God's chosen people. We just talked about the plan of salvation, how anyone can come and be a part of God's people by obeying the gospel. See, it's a different covenant. It's a better covenant. It's a newer covenant. And it's one that God wants us to to agree to uphold, right? Ezra and Shechaniah understood they needed a covenant with God and they made one. Each of us have to individually come to that understanding. I need to be in a covenant relationship with God. There's only one way to do that. I have to approach God in submission, whatever that is, right? We talked about what it is in the Christian dispensation, It was different when Ezra was alive, but we're making present-day application, right? So I have to be in a uh, uh, covenant relationship. Now, these two men, Ezra and Shek and I, they knew that, that it was urgent. They knew it was time to do something, and time was definitely running out, and they needed to turn their attention to it immediately. Notice what the prophet Isaiah said. Isaiah 55, beginning with verse 6. He said, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Notice some things here that I think we need to pay close attention to in this statement. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. There's going to come a time when he can't be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. There's going to come a time when he's not near. We want to be careful about that, right? Ezra and the people didn't wait for a better time. They immediately reacted. Often I think we get distracted by the things in life and we lose our urgency toward that which is most important. Listen, we've got children to care for. We've got house payments. We've got car payments. We've got light bills, water bills, grocery bills, uh, bills for this, bills for that. If you've got young children, you're running all over creation, carrying them around from place to place, right? You've got a lot of things on your mind, and it's easy to forget about God because I can't see Him with my eyes. See, that's why we have to make a covenant with God, and we have to maintain that. We have to have that desire. Like Ezra. Like Ezra. One today must be directed in his desire. To please God. We can't just come up with something ourselves, can we? What if Ezra had come up with his own plan? Wouldn't have worked, would it? He had to be directed by God. He, along with the leaders of Israel, allowed themselves to be directed by God. When we look at the religious world today, so many people decide that they want to be saved a whole other way than what we read about in the Bible. They're not being directed by God. God needs to direct us. Shechaniah, in our context, determined what needed to be done, and he knew what needed to be done for repentance to be real. Right? What they have to do? 
Well, in their context, get rid of your, your husbands and wives that you're not supposed to have. What about in our context, our personal lives? Well, probably something else, but we still need to recognize it and turn back to God. You know, again, that might be an appropriate response for some people today. I don't think as much probably as it used to be, but it still is a problem in the world. But there are other problems we have to address, right? We have to come to terms about our situation. And we need to do what God wants. I think at first glance, that may seem a little harsh, doesn't it? Because when we look in Ezra chapter 10, it talks about having uh, uh, strange wives, having being married outside the, the, uh, uh, the people of God. Did you know at one point in chapter 10 it says, and they also had children? By those strange wives. That's hard, isn't it? That's hard. What do you do? You going to break up a family? I, I read a debate one time by erring brother Olin Hicks and Jim Waldron on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And this isn't a sermon about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, but I'm making a point. He said, so, uh, he said you could be married 80 times. As long as you repented of the ceremony. He said the ceremony was the sin. Not to, he said you can't live in sin. Can't live in fornication. Doesn't make sense. But he said you can be married 80 times. He said you want to break up a family? You're, he accused Brother Waldron of being for divorce. You're trying to cause divorce. Brother Waldron wasn't trying to cause divorce. He's trying to save souls, right? If you're in a, a situation you have to get out of the sin. Okay, let's take marriage, divorce, and remarriage out of the way. What if you steal cars for a living? Can you keep the car? You obey the gospel? Jeff steals my car, he obeys the gospel. Can he keep the car? He's got to bring the car back. He's got to give up the car. Now, I might get rid of the car because I don't want it anymore. But he has to get rid of the car and give it back to the rightful owner, right? You can't take someone's husband or wife. That's the bottom line. You can't take someone else's physical property. And I'm not saying husbands or wives are physical property. I'm going from one example to the other. And so you have to get rid of that. Notice how Paul's statement of, in Ephesians 4.28 complements uh, Israel in Ezra's day. Ephesians 4.28, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands, the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. You work while you can, so you can take care of yourself and so you can help other people if necessary. That's what the, the universal church needs to consider, right? How are we going to help other people? We're helping ourselves and we're helping others. That's what God expects. There must be confession. There must be a covenant. But we notice in the passage read for us, all the best laid plans and intentions will not avail unless we carry it out. That's our last point. Where does it start? Well, if we pay attention to Ezra, it starts with the leadership, doesn't it? It can't start from the bottom up. It has to start from the top down. Right? Top down. Leaders lead from the front with authority and also by example. When the church is organized in the ways, uh, in the way in which God wants it organized with elders and deacons and members, Elders lead and oversee the congregation. They have actual authority. They have, uh, uh, they're in a place to present a good example. Now, 
If you don't have elders and deacons, what do you do? Well, you have a leadership, but you ought to always be striving to organize scripturally the way that God intends for one to be organized. He has the plan and He knows what's best, but it can't stop there. Just because you have a faithful eldership or a faithful leadership, does that mean everyone in the congregation is faithful? No, that doesn't. that's not what it means. We hope that's the case, but what if that's not the case? The leadership has to do something, right? The leadership has to do something. But we have to keep in mind, a person cannot help anyone unless he helps himself first. And it can't just be lip service, right? You can't just make a statement. Do you recall when Josiah found the book of the law in the temple? He found the book of the law, he dusted it off, and he did more than than uh, uh, just feel bad, didn't he? He did more than just feel bad because Israel hadn't been doing what God wanted. He instituted a plan to get rid of idol worship and to institute proper worship. When we look at the expression, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, I don't know if you've ever read Dante's Divine Comedy, but that's what... uh, happens in a lot of people's lives. When we look in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, those people saw that there was a problem. They wanted to do something. Men and brethren, what shall we do? And that's when uh, Peter taught them the plan of salvation. If you read Dante's Divine Comedy, what it is about is you have Dante's guy taking him to look at hell. Okay? As he's going through and he's looking at the different places in hell, there's there are walls and... And on those walls are written all sorts of promises that individuals had made to do the right thing. But they never got around to it. See, if we do not carry out the plan, it doesn't matter how good the plan is. Now, that's reality, isn't it? That's reality. We need to do more than just feel bad individually about not being a Christian or having fallen away or knowing to do the right things and we haven't done them. We have an opportunity to get serious about being serious, but we have to choose to do it. I want us to to lay hold to the opportunities with which God has blessed us. And let's look at ourselves individually. When Queen Victoria was a child, she didn't know that she was in line uh, for the throne in England. She wasn't aware of that. And so in the process of time, those who were teaching her, her her instructors, they became very frustrated with her because she didn't pay attention. She didn't put forth any effort. She just kind of did what she wanted to do. And so finally they came to her and they decided to tell her one day that she was was in line to be queen. And so they told her, listen, you will be the queen of England one day. And upon hearing that, She quietly made a statement that I think we need to understand. She said, then I will be good. Why? The realization that she had inherited such a high calling gave her a sense of responsibility and profoundly affected her life and her conduct from that day on. Now, you know, I guess the English and some of the other commonwealths see that as a high calling. I'm not too impressed with with royalty or the king or the queen of England. But to those folks, it's a big deal. What about the high calling of God? What about the high calling of Christ? We have been given an opportunity for an inheritance. 
that ought to profoundly affect our conduct and our behavior. Just like it did uh, when Queen Victoria was told she was going to be queen one day. We need to be Christians in the mold that God expects. Christ gave His life for it. We ought to honor that. If you've never obeyed the gospel, do that today. Don't leave here not in that covenant relationship of which we spoke. Let's look at the example of Ezra, the idea of confession, the idea of carrying out the plan, being in a covenant relationship, and doing the things that God has asked us to do. We see a wonderful illustration of that in Ezra and the people of Israel at that time. If you have obeyed the gospel and you become unfaithful, come back to Him. That's what, that's what the people did. They came to the understanding they had done wrong. You know, God didn't punish them for repenting. Ezra didn't look down upon them for repenting. He was happy for them and they were happy for each other. If you need to answer this Lord's invitation, do that as we stand and as we sing.